Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 219, Listener's Questions. We'd like to thank John S. for being a brand new Patreon backer. the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together in staten island new york this is chris and this is anthony and for once anthony we're actually together at the table there's no way to prove that (laughs) (laughs) i think the audio quality will kind of sure up the fact that we're actually not using high-tech software but a very echoey basement to record this (laughs) it's quite clear we're in the same room it's the same amount of echo (laughs) (laughs) So we have a great episode for you. We are taking listener questions and giving you some feedback on what we think you think about the best in board gaming for this week, because Anthony is here for our special charity board gaming day. So if you haven't checked us out on Facebook or listened to a recent podcast, BGA is doing once again, their charity outreach to the community. And this year we're working with Fanwood Presbyterian Church in Fanwood, New Jersey, They do an outreach program and they feed the poor locally in New Jersey, and we wanted to help them with their quest to do that. So we're putting together a full day of gaming. So by the time you hear this episode, the charity event, which happens on May 4th, obviously 2019, will be at Fanwood, New Jersey at the Fanwood Presbyterian Church in, obviously, once again, Fanwood, New Jersey. So if you happen to be in the area please drop on by. We'd love to see you play some games, get some things to the table and obviously help a great cause. If you'd be interested in actually just helping the cause, but are not in the area, check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash BGA, and you'll get full information from our events page about how to help out the charity. But once again, if you're local, do stop by. We're going to be having board game auctions, raffles, and we have a number of local game stores that have been helping out. We have The Only Game in Town, which is a great board game store out in the area. We have Maplewood Hobby, and we also have Time Warp Comics and Games, three great stores in the New Jersey area that are donating games, donating their board gaming library for the day, and we'll be there to kind of help out. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm, I mean, I'm just excited to be out of the house. Like, I'll play a board game. It's for charity. Cool. Board games. Anthony's wife doesn't know that this is all a giant scam to spring him from the house for the weekend. Yeah, right. <laughs> charity. Doesn't listen to this, so who knows? Yeah, it's actually a really cool Saturday geek day because it's going to be free comic book day. So we'll have free comic books at the event, from what I'm told. And also, may the fourth be with you which has now become somewhat of a geek holiday. So there's a lot of good stuff to do on May 4th. So if you are not in the area, please grab some friends, get some games to the table, and we will join you in this great geek tradition of playing games on a Saturday and escaping from the family, at least temporarily. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's what's going on with our events. But Anthony, what else is going on with BGA? Yeah, we got the Patreon contest, guys. It's every single week. This is actually week 12 that we've done this. It's, it's not a particular milestone of any kind, but I thought I'd throw that out there. It's kind of cool. We're three months in now, giving away games. Last week, we gave away a game to Peter, and Peter chose uh, from Game Surplus, Wildlands. Ooh. Uh, yeah, so that shipped out to him last week. Hopefully, Peter is enjoying that. This week's winner is Jordan. So Jordan's going to get an email from me today which is also the day this is going up. So <laughs> if you're listening to this, check your email. 
Uh, and I just wanted to throw this out there too, because I did get some questions from a few people on Patreon. Once you win, you can win again. It is possible. I do draw these at random every week. So if you've heard your name, don't think, oh, okay, well, I'm done now, or maybe they'll have better games later. You could win again. It's possible you could win multiple times in this contest. Yeah, so we're going to be running this every single week. And at this point, I think we've had 12 unique winners out of the 40-some-odd people who are eligible, which is awesome, which I want as many people to get games as possible, but we are giving them away every single week. So the odds of that happening are pretty high so um that's gonna be pretty cool stuff and then of course we have another contest coming up next month for everybody out there who's not a patreon backer um when we have the, our new world cup competition so more information on that soon but if you're not a patreon backer yet for you know can't afford it don't have the resources whatever it might be stay tuned you will also have an opportunity to enter uh, one of our other contests here in about a month Thank you all for your support. It means a great deal to us. Supporting BGA through the Patreon account helps us produce a lot more content and obviously doing a lot more events. So this charity event wouldn't be possible without the support of the Patreon backers. And obviously, we want to do a lot more great things, especially, as Anthony mentioned, have a contest that's open to everyone, Patreon backers and listeners out there, too. Plus, the fact is, once we reached a number that we could actually give back and give games back out... We're at the point where we're still not making enough to do more things. So if you would help continue uh, your support, it would help us go to more conventions, produce more content, do more videos, and just, you know, explore this great hobby. So please keep up with us. And as Anthony mentioned, if you can't support us financially, please share this podcast with other people. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that there is board gaming podcasts out there. And it lets us do a lot of good out there in the community. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with BGA. I know that this episode is all about our listener questions and not about the Avengers Endgame nor the Game of Thrones <laughs> Episode 3, so uh, we can't go into that, so to speak. No, no. I mean, you, you somehow still haven't seen Endgame. I don't know how you've survived <laughs> five days on that, but we were ranting for at least an hour earlier about Game of Thrones. Maybe we'll do a, a bonus on that at some point. <laughs> Make at least half of you angry, regardless of which side you're on. <laughs> there you go. All right, so that's everything that's going on with us. Let's get on to our acquisition disorder. So what do you have up for us this week, Anthony? Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't talk about this already, because it is one of my favorite games from the last year or so. Um, and that's an expansion for Bunny Kingdoms. Ooh. Is, yeah, right? Love it's, the bunnies. It's such a good game. Uh, the, the new expansion is called In the Sky, and this is Richard Garfield's, I think his most recent game. Uh, it came out beginning of last year and the idea is you're drafting cards on those cards as various numbers and letters and plot numbers and you're using those to place your bunnies out on this giant map it's an area control game but a couple things about it one you draft the cards so it's not random what you get you do get a little bit of control and you can mess with other people which is awesome two you can't remove other people's stuff from the map which is one of my big problems with area control games it's a snowballing game. Like the first round, maybe you score 20, then 100, then 250, whatever it ends up being. So the scores are also insane. All things I love about board games. So this was like a sleeper hit for me. I had not heard of it. I played it. I loved it. I bought it. I've played it a ton. So the expansion adds just more of everything, which all of which I'm excited for. So the First thing that it does, it adds a new board. So now you have a board with uh, kind of off to the side where you can go up into the sky and build additional stuff. Uh, you also have new cards, new types of resources, 
a set of playing pieces. Okay, so this is maybe I don't love everything. You can now play with five players. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dreaded five player rule that's not, why stop doing it there's no reason and then a larger type of building to increase your influence by a factor of five so you know instead of the three types of buildings you have now you have a fourth which is cool because it just means even higher scores <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. yes i don't know it's it's the kind of game i don't mind them just throwing more at because it wasn't very long to start with it was maybe an hour long it felt strategically deep there was a lot to it and you could get better at it by playing it more but it wasn't like best player most plays wins kind of a thing Mm -hmm. and i don't know it's just so cute like looking through the illustrations and they're just these hilarious little fantasy tropes with bunnies like wearing kilts attacking each other whatever it was it was hilarious i think that's a trend that board gaming is going we take a look at root which just like bunny kingdom from the looks of it, it's absolutely adorable. It's immediately accessible. And yet at the same time, there is some really decent, crunchy strategy in these games that if you just overlook that, you're going to get into a lot of trouble when the game comes actually down to play. That's a good point. Yeah, because like Root is like a lighter version of a coin game mm-hmm. with furry animals. Yes. And everybody loves it. Yes. Right? And the same thing here. Bunny Kingdom is a lighter version of an area control game with bunnies. Yeah. And I love it. And there's certainly there are people who refuse to play it because <laughs> it is Bunny Kingdom. But I don't know. I'm pretty psyched for this. I think it comes out really soon. <laughs> I will be picking it up uh, whenever I see it. And yeah, I think I think more parents should buy this games because in general, you want to introduce your children to military strategy as yeah. early as possible. I just played Risk Star Wars with my son, who's seven, <laughs> and he handily defeated me. So it was. It wasn't great. And now he knows how to uh, better defend Winterfell than some people. But let's not get into that. (laughs) No spoilers. (laughs) Yeah, so that's Bunny Kingdoms in the sky. I'll probably be reviewing it sometime next month when I get to the table. So I want to talk about a Kickstarter that popped up that was an original Kickstarter way back when. That is Tokonoko Giant. Now, we've already talked about Tokonoko way back. We've done a review of the game. And basically, it's well known as the game with pandas. So the game is all about laying out fields and growing bamboo so that your panda will have something to eat. So there is somewhat of a set collection mechanic to it. So you're collecting pieces of bamboo that the the panda eats by moving the panda around and basically how the tiles are laid out. That will score you points because, once again, you're trying to meet a certain kind of quest order. So it's a pretty accessible game. And yet at the same time, just like we talked about with Bunny Kingdom, there is some really decent complexity to it. So you can play with family and they'll completely enjoy it. Or you can play with gamers and they'll enjoy it too. What's really amazing about this game when it first came out, at least the base game, was the production was kind of off the chart. The bamboo was all beautifully colored and really nice pieces. And they stacked up and the panda and the gardener were only really quality pieces. And it was a fine game. At some point, they decided, let's make a super deluxe version of this in a giant wood crate, pretty much, and they enlarged everything in the game. So it was a weird situation. It was one of the very, very first board games that got a kind of like super deluxified, not just deluxified, but super deluxified. And it was going for like over $300. And some people jumped at it and some people were like, this has got to be you know crazy. Why would you spend... 300 some odd dollars for a very light family game that did have complexity but still a very light family game 
since then, obviously the industry has changed. Small World Deluxe came out and there's been so many games. Uh, Takedo had a Super Deluxe Edition. A lot of games had Super Deluxe Editions. And a lot of games now even have those super wooden inserts from like Broken Token and Meeple Realty where it's a giant wooden box. So the idea of spending $300 on a board game for something that is not that super complex or heavy, but yet had very nice components is now something that everyone tends to do, or a lot of people tend to do. So Kickstarter has re kind of like popped this one up again. So you can pick up once again, the giant Tokonoko version. And once again, it's a small wooden crate comes with these, you know, I guess giant size, as far as what the miniatures used to be pandas, the large bamboo, the large tiles, and it comes with the expansion, or you could pick up the expansion in addition. If you've already picked up the initial version, you can now pick up the expansion version, the chibis. And that's basically the little baby pandas that are adorable, but in the base game, they were just basically these little chits. Now they're actually little models. So there's a lot of ways to pick these different things up. And obviously this is typically a lot of fun if you are enjoying this type of game. Obviously, this campaign is already backed, and it will wrap up on May 6th. So you don't have too long when you listen to this episode if you're interested in the campaign. If you do want to pick up everything, if you want to pick up the base game, if you want to pick up all the giant baby pandas and everything else, it goes for about $319. That's not including the shipping, which is substantial because, once again, this is a very big pot, you know, package. It's something to take a look at, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, I... I like Takenoko plenty. Yeah. I, I always looked at this. Man, this is amazing. I'd love to have this on my shelf. I could not justify the expense <laughs> at all. And that's somebody who's justified a lot of expenses in this hobby. <laughs> so, um, but that's not to say, like, if you play it a lot and love it, go for it, right? Yeah. It's definitely something that it's got, like, I have the Small World Deluxe. I thought I was insane at the time to buy it, but I love the game so much. And it was such detailed quality. I was like, I'll have this forever. And I'm still happy with my purchase. So this has to be a game you love and you know you're going to get to the table so to speak and it's not easily transfer it's not easily transportable so you want to keep that in mind as well all right anthony so those are the games that we really want to get to the table despite their large size and weight and cuteness uh let's talk about the games that actually got to the table what did you play yeah i got a lot to the table the last couple of weeks like if you guys have been paying any attention my last few reviews have been like tiny little expansions and Whatever I happen to be getting to the table recently. Um, but I've gotten a few big ones out of late. I've uh, gotten a little more game time in. And so the big one I want to talk about is Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth. This is the big box ex- release from Fantasy Flight Games for the first half of this year. And honestly, I wasn't going to get it and I wasn't going to play it. Because the way they described it initially was like Descent, but with Lord of the Rings. Or whether fantasy flight described it that way or just what I did in my head, but it's not really that it's more like if you took mansions of madness and descent or Imperial assault and mash them together and then added Lord of the Rings on top of it, because the way the game plays out feels unique, but also very familiar if you played those other uh, franchises. So the idea of the game is yes, it is driven by an app. If you don't like that, then maybe stop listening because it's just what it is. <laughs> like, I don't care. I've never really been bothered by the app thing. I love Mansions of Madness. I liked XCOM. These are things that don't bother me, but I know a lot of people it does. And if it does, I totally respect that. And, you know, this is not going to be a game for you. You cannot play it without the app, period. You just can't do it. So 
the the idea of the game is you have a character and you are going to choose a class for that character. They each come with one. So like if you're Aragorn, you can be the captain or you could choose to be a pathfinder or you could choose to be the musician. It's up to you. But each of those has their own unique cards. So when you choose a character, you're going to get the starter cards for that character, the six basic cards, and then the first three of the class cards at the beginning of the game. And you'll get more as the game goes along. Uh, plus a weakness. You're gonna have a little deck of 15 cards. And then you're going to start with some very basic equipment, but there's a big deck of stuff that will upgrade over time so you can get additional better equipment as you go along. And the the map kind of goes out modular. So there's two kinds of maps. You have the one where it's just like these two squares, like an indoor type of map, and it's clear where everything is and it'll pop up as you move around, but it's, you know, big tiles, right? Or it's got those little hex grids that fantasy flight likes to do where they have between four and like 15 little hexes on them and they all kind of tie together in weird ways that's what most of the game seems to be those come out as you explore and find new things and the app will tell you where they go and when they go there and so on your turn you're going to go through three things it's a cooperative game so everybody kind of takes their actions together and the beginning of every round is actions so Every single time through, you can choose the order in which this happens. Like, I can go first one round, you can go first the next, you can go first again the next. You just decide who can do the most beneficial thing. It's really like a puzzle you're trying to solve, like maximize the efficiency of when you do your actions. The actions themselves are pretty straightforward. You can move, you can attack, you can explore, review different things. But most of the things you try to do are going to have skill checks. And so you have multiple different skill stats on your character sheet and they can be modified by various things you have out when you do that you're going to draw the number of cards from your deck based on that skill so if you have a strength of three and you're attacking something and you're using a weapon with a strength of three you will draw three cards and if you're looking for successes on those cards which is like a little sun symbol if you get the successes you need awesome you complete the task if you're attacking you check your weapon see what those translate to you can also convert things that are misses but not failures with inspiration tokens. So you can build those up throughout the game and spend them here to kind of increase the value of what you're doing. And then there are some other abilities too. Once you've done all that, whatever happens, the app will tell you. You attack the enemy, it'll tell you if you kill them, you complete the objective, or you don't, it'll tell you what happens. Various other things can come out when that happens. So if you attack and you fail, they can attack you back. If you explore something and it doesn't really work out, then maybe you get dinged with some extra fear or damage cards. These cards kind of come, they come out of a deck. You pick them up, you look at them, you do the thing it says. And sometimes you put them face down, sometimes you leave them face up, sometimes you discard them, but they're almost always bad. Then you move through the, the next part of the phase, which is the enemies doing their stuff, which is pretty straightforward. They'll move a certain number of spaces towards a character, they'll attack them, they'll do whatever they're going to do. And then you get to the end, which is the rally phase. In the rally phase, you are going to shuffle all your cards and then scout. And the scouting number that you choose is going to be based on, um, it starts at two, but some things can upgrade it. But basically you draw that many cards, you pick one, you place it face down in front or face up in front of you. And now that card is available to use in the future. But the real interesting thing about scouting is that when you don't choose a card, you can put it back on the bottom or the top of your deck. So if it's a failure or a weakness, which is even worse, you just put it on the bottom of your deck. If it's a success, you now have to choose if you want to keep the success card 
prepared because those are very powerful or put it on top of your deck and guarantee that the next check you do is a success. I really, really like that mechanic because you get to prepare and manipulate and kind of manage your deck. Some other abilities let you do that even more so. And then you know, for example, okay, I'm going to go first this turn because I'm going to attack that thing. And I know the first two cards in my deck are successes. I know for a fact. So I'm going to be able to hit him for six. He only needs five. Boom, right? You can plan for that. And it's it, in a way that you can't do with dice. You know, a lot of these games are dice-driven. You roll the dice. You can mitigate as much as you want, but there's always a chance you still fail. So um, I really like that part of it. The other part, too, is like there are different abilities that allow you to move around the map differently. Certain cards that you know are in your deck, you wait for them to come out. Like the Pathfinder has a card that when you play it, if it's prepared in front of you, you can uh, sprint and then have another character move across the map. So what one thing we did in a game is I lured a bunch of bad guys towards me into this corner way at the bottom right of the map. And then the other player used that card way over there, drew me all the way across the map, and then now the bad guys were like three turns away from us. So we had a little <laughs> bit of time to do what we needed to do. But we knew that card was there, having played it a couple times. Sure. So we could kind of manipulate and work around the system a little bit. As you get into the game, the more stories you do, the more of that kind of stuff comes out. Like, the tutorial is kind of lame, actually. I don't think it's a very good tutorial. Like, it teaches you the basics of the game, but it's boring. It's all combat. It's a ton of stuff in the app. It's not as much fun. That second chapter immediately gets more interesting because it's this big combat puzzle. These bunch of guys, you have to get to the end and fight this one dude, but these people keep respawning and attacking you, and you're just trying to figure out how to get around them in a certain way. Like, you can't just kill them all. You don't have enough resources or time. Sure. And the game has a threat tracker, the same as like the Lord of the Rings card game. Yeah. So if that fills up, you fail and it just ends. And similar to like the Arkham card game, if you fail and it ends, something happens, but you just move on to the next chapter. You don't okay. have to redo it. That's good. Yeah. It's nice. It's not like Gloomhaven where you're like, do it again, <laughs> do it again, do it again. <laughs> um, like we redid the first chapter once because we failed the first time through. But we realized quickly, you don't really need to do that. Sure. Um, the game will save itself. So you just save, You can save in the middle of a game, leave it set up, come back to it later. Uh, you get upgrades between things. So like if you succeed, for example, maybe you get some extra you know, cards into your deck. If you fail, maybe you get an extra weakness into your deck. So now you're a little bit weaker next time through. It's got a lot of really cool things. I have not completed a full campaign yet, but sure. I'm very much looking forward to it because it's just, it's so much fun. Like it's That's just, great. Like, Mansions of Madness, I really liked because it had all these puzzles and it felt like you were a detective. Yeah. But I didn't love the theme. Sure. So I just didn't play it very much. This is that, but replaces half of that stuff with combat. But And then you have that deck of cards, which acts basically as like this puzzle mechanism to figure out. It's really, really a lot of fun. So I'm glad I went for it, even though I wasn't going to, because it turns out this is fantastic. And wow. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to finishing the campaign here in the next month. Hopefully there's new content for it soon. I mean, it's Fantasy Flight. There will be. But sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really good game. It's definitely a buy. It's wow. expensive. It's 100 bucks, And it's app only. So caveats there for people who either A, want to wait for more content to come out, which I think probably you might want to. I feel like we're already almost to the end. And that's not a ton of plays. And B, if you just don't want to deal with the app only thing. Because it will sure. always be that. It's not, it's not like Imperial Assault where you can ignore that part. You have to do it. And just so people know who maybe have not backed this game previously, the app is free. Yeah, for sure. You download the app for free. It's on Windows, PC, or 
iOS or Android or any of that stuff. The one thing we noticed, though, is if you save on one device, it doesn't seem to save to the cloud. Okay. So you have to continue on that device. So we played at my friend's house and we saved it. And then we played at my house and we had to kind of fake our way through the first one real quick. Sure. So we could continue with the second chapter. Um, and the other thing, too, this is speculation, but Mansions of Madness had digital only expansions. Okay. Where you could pay five bucks and it would give you a new campaign or new story or whatever it was. And there's rumors they're going to do the same thing here. So you just pay $5 and get more content using the materials you already have. So it's not like a $30 box of stuff, which I loved that about Mansions of Madness, because even when you were waiting between boxes of plastic, there was more content to play. So it seems like for you, obviously as a Lord of Ring fan, but also because this is a later implementation of a lot of things they do with Mansions of Madness, you would say that this game in the, I guess, quote-unquote pantheon of fantasy flight games like descent like imperial assault like mansions of madness this would be on the top i don't know it's hard to say because you're a big star wars fan too so it's not like yeah yeah and you've recently you know gained some tentacles so you went cthulhu (laughs) over the last couple of years so i don't know if it's the best one yet just because there's not enough content to say okay i think mansions of madness might still be the best of these okay but there's so much content for that but I don't like that one as much. <laughs> and how about like uh, Lord of the Rings experience? You're a big Lord of the Rings fan. There's War of the Rings. There's Five Armies. There's the LCG. There's Hunt for the Ring. Obviously, there's this. And there's probably another dozen other games I can't think of off the top of my head. Uh, thus far, it's kind of generic on that front. Okay. Like it's it's the Lord of the Rings theme. It's got some music in the background, which is nice. It reuses a bunch of art from the card game. Like specifically, I I'm look, I was looking through my cards the other day. I'm like, these are exactly the same picture. I've seen this guy before. Yeah. And so they do that. They've done that with Star Wars too. It's just, they've already made the art. Why not? Um, they do have the character. So it's not like you can be Gimli. You can be uh, Aragorn. You can be Legolas. Those yeah. are in the base box as character options. That's good. But the story wise, I... It's, it doesn't matter. It like doesn't... the first chapter is like, this thing got stolen. Go find it. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, And they weave stuff in and stuff is starting to come in and it's getting a little more interesting. So I think as you go, it's certainly going to become more lore based. But think of like the Lord of the Rings card game, especially like the first couple times through. Sure. You're like, it's Lord of the Rings, but it's like random story from Lord of the Rings, you know, generic version. It's not bad. But if you're looking for like the, like the actual saga experience of that, that's just not it. Okay. All right, so a game that I want to talk about that I recently got to tables, a game that I anticipated for a very, very long time. This is Innis from Matago Games. Now, if you're not familiar with Matago Games, they've done some tremendous games. They did Cyclades, they did Kemet, and they do these really kind of beautiful productions, um, really interesting kind of deep dives and strategy games. Now, Kemet is very interesting because uh, it has obviously its own world. So this game is all deeply based in the Celtic history of the kings and how they were elected, as well as dealing with some of their gods at the time. Now, when you look at the game itself, it looks straight like dudes on a map, because basically it's dudes on a map. But what's interesting about the game is right off the bat, the way the game kind of assembles itself throughout. So basically you have these really unique kind of land tiles that are kind of sectioned off and you connect them like big puzzle pieces and they're thick and they're kind of beautifully illustrated. And you're like, wow, this is really interesting. This is an interesting world that we're going to kind of grow and discover. And you start off with some defensive positions and you're able to put your, your dudes out on the map. 
And then basically as the game goes on, you're going to be adding additional land tiles that kind of fit in like just beautiful puzzle pieces that depict this land. And the art in this game is honestly off the charts. It's really, it's extraordinary in so many different ways. The box cover, the land tiles, it's it's just beyond. This is um, Dimitri Bielik and Jim Fitzpatrick who did the artwork here and just there are very few games that I've seen in all of the games that I played throughout the podcast or just gaming in general that have artwork that's this good. There's just nothing really out there. This is just phenomenal. And recently they redid the box cover, which is very nice. I mean, it's just a different style for the box cover. But basically in the game, what you're trying to do is you're trying to achieve one of three different objectives. So there is the leadership objective. And basically this all comes down to having the most figures in a territory that has six opposing clan figures. So each of your figures is a clan. And if there's six figures out there of different clans and you happen to have the most figures in that area, you're right in position to win the game. Also, you could also try to claim the land victory, which is you have to have your clans present in six different territories. So as I mentioned, those lands kind of populate out and then you'll have more lands as the game goes on. And then there is a religion victory condition in where you have your clans in territories that collectively contain six sanctuaries. Now, sanctuaries could be scattered among six lands or they might be all piled up in one land or such. If you have that victory condition or any of those victory conditions by the end of the round, you win the game. Now, obviously, you have to have the right tokens in order to claim this victory. And there are these D tokens in the game that you'll be able to generate throughout by using certain cards that are going to reduce that amount. So instead of having six sanctuaries, if you have two D tokens, now you have to have area control in four of those sanctuaries. So it kind of like makes the game a little bit easier. And as the game goes on, people will be picking up those D tokens. So it does help the game wrap up if there's some sort of stalemate throughout the game. So as I mentioned, it's a dudes on the map game, but it doesn't play like a dudes on the map game because you're trying to reach those conditions. And now initially, it seems like you just want to control all the areas, but as the game goes on, you realize you just want to be in the right position at the right time, and that can happen almost at any time. So at the start of the game, you're going to get a hand of cards, and these are these kind of like action season cards, and you'll draft. And it will be the same set of cards throughout the game. So eventually, as you play the game, or you play the game multiple times, you'll get familiar with what cards and what actions are available. So if you don't happen to have in your hand that big attack card or that big defense card, then you know that probably one of your opponents have it, unless it's that one discarded card out of the game. So on your turn, you play a card. You probably are going to be adding clans moving clans, attacking other players, defending your particular land, or negating other special abilities throughout the game. Everyone plays a card, and the attacking mechanic is pretty basic. So basically, you'll play an attack card that'll let you move your your clans from one section to another. Now you're in that section. Now you get to attack an opponent. You can decide to go peacefully and not attack, and you're just there to visit, but typically you're going to want to attack. And when you do so, the opponent either has to lose a figure backtrack their figure to a land that they control or discard a green card. Now the green cards are action cards. So doing that kind of really hinders them. Then they get to attack you. You have the same decisions and eventually either you come to a peaceful situation or you retreat or you're out of cards basically. 
You continue to do this until someone meets the victory condition. There's also epic red cards that utilize the god powers and that are just, you know, kind of super powerful and they knock people around and you'll be able to pick those up through the game. And that's pretty much it. And this is a beautiful game. The idea of having a set number of cards that everyone will be drafting from so they'll pick your action. So if you don't get an attack card that round, you can't attack. So you might put yourself in a position where someone else is near their victory condition. And because you have no attack card, you can't stop them. So it's a really balancing, you know, attack versus defense. And that's really what card drafting does best as far as what do I want to give my opponents versus what do I want to keep. So for Innis, I'm going to give this a buy. The gameplay is not extraordinary. It's good. It's not extraordinary, but the artwork in the game and the production of the game just moves it to a light recommendation for a buy. Yeah, I picked this one up because of all that. Yes. <laughs> Not like I have Blood Rage and Rising Sun and Kemet's been on my list for a while. And yet I picked this up anyways. I know it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of in the same ballpark because it looks so amazing. And it was on sale. Yeah. And Madigo does a great job as far as their games are concerned because the production's great. And they're just very unique games. I should mention there's an expansion coming out, Seasons of Innis, which probably not the best title possible, but this expansion brings Anthony's favorite module, a fifth player. Uh, come on. <laughs> there's going to be new territories, and the territories are interesting because if you control territory, you get a special ability, so that's pretty cool. And there are going to be, you know, just new action cards involved in the game because that's basically what you need to do because actions are all about the game. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably get it just because I want to get this to the table more. Yeah. I haven't really gotten a chance to play my copy at all. And, you know, expansions get people interested again. They're like, ooh, new stuff. <laughs> but not with five. All right? Stop it. Stop doing that. So if you have a fifth friend... No, tell them they can't play. <laughs> you can only have three friends. That's what Anthony's saying. That's it. Three. No more than three friends. That's a, that's a maximum amount of friends you can have. That's the official stance of this podcast. <laughs> The comments and expressions made by Anthony are his alone and not that reflecting of the Board Game Anonymous universe. I published this. I could just cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute. I edit the podcast. <laughs> true, but it goes through me before it goes online. Oh, man. Just stop making five-player expansions, guys. It never works. <laughs> All right. So that's everything that's hitting our table. Anthony, let's get on to the most important thing in the world for us. That's our listeners, even the fifth listener. We want to talk about their questions for this episode. So for our feature review, listener questions, Anthony. Yeah, I, uh, we posted this out to Facebook, Twitter, our Patreon group. We got a, a bunch of good questions and response. So we've picked out a handful of them that we wanted to talk through. There are a couple in here we've actually discussed a little bit in the past, but we realized that some of that was on a bonus Patreon episode. So a lot of you have not heard our discussion on these things. And there's at least one question here as well that I subsequently asked everybody else so we'll talk about that one at the end that's why we didn't have our question of the week today it will be part of our feature so kicking things off uh with willie and his first question how has your taste in games changed since you started in the hobby well you know initially when i came into board gaming i was all about theme theme was the biggest thing as far as like purchasing games so i remember when i went and like initially said i have a board game group they're gonna like these games I should try to get a diversity of themes. So I should get a space game. I should get a fantasy game. I should get a war game. I should get all these types of themes because that's what people are going to want to do, different themes. 
I quickly realized it has just a little bit to do with theme, but more about the mechanics. So I moved from more of a thematic gamer, not necessarily a Marathrash, but there was a Marathrash games there, but into mechanics. Because as you start playing games over and over again, people talk more about the mechanics. Like, oh, that's a really cool car drafting game, or yeah, that's a tableau building game or a set collection game and stuff like that. Theme matters, but thematically how the game kind of connects to the mechanics were most important. So completely thematic to like more Euro as far as mechanics are concerned, where the theme didn't matter as much. So me loving Agricola was a radical surprise to me because I never was like, I don't want to play a game about farming. Why would I want to play a game about farming? That seems like the last game I would want to play. I'm like, I love this game. And then that moved me and that moved me from the thematic side to the mechanical side. Yeah, it's funny. I've been kind of up and down on a lot of these things. Like I got into the hobby on accident because I was just looking for a group, something to go do. Like I honestly, I was almost getting back into magic and that kind of stuff. And then I was looking for a Scrabble group and I stumbled upon this group and the the result was I'll play anything and I like all this stuff, but the games immediately attracted my attention were the Euros. I like puzzles. I've always loved puzzles. And that's what those are. Most of the time, they're good ones are puzzles. Now, some of the first Euros I played weren't that good or I didn't like them very much. Like Agricola, I think was one of the first ones I played. And I was just, I had a trouble with that, you know, two, three times playing it. And so it took a while, if only because I got in my own head of like, these games are too hard. You know, like the big, heavy stuff. So I avoided a lot of the really big, heavy games for a little while. And once I realized, like, they're not too hard, I just really need to fully understand them. And not every game's for everybody. Maybe I just don't like Agricola. (laughs) (laughs) And now that's that's the majority of my collection. Now, there's been a curve in there with miniatures, I think. Yeah. Where I got super into miniatures. I just wanted all the miniatures and everything. And then I realized, these games aren't that good. Sure. Or they're all the same. Whether they're good or not, I don't know. They're all the same. So... I don't know how many boxes of miniatures I could realistically, you know, expect to hold on to. Um, so I've kind of stopped buying those. I don't play them as much, uh, of course, with the exception of the game I reviewed today. But yeah, I think in general, it's, it's just been, Euros have been pretty early on where the games that I liked. And then I went through my Marathrash phase and I'm kind of back out of it again. Yeah, I think the miniature phase for me too at some point was like, oh my God, this game is produced so amazingly. I never saw anything like this. And then like, then you eventually pile up plastic in your house. You're like, I need to stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I, my closet in my office has a stack of Simon boxes. They're all in the closet, by the way. None of them are on the shelf. And there's like seven Arcadia Quest boxes, three yep. or four Zombicide boxes. Yep. And then like random games that I've never played, like Chaos Ball or something. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, I, I have this is not good. <laughs> Yeah, I have the same closet of plastic miniature as far as... <laughs> and they get you with the theme. So like Attack Wing and X-Wing miniatures, you're like, I love that theme. And then like, I just spent a ridiculous amount of money on plastic that I'm not going to get to the table as much as I want. But you really want to have that kind of like completionist or I love that genre and that fandom. So yeah, I want to have X-Wing, every X-Wing miniature ship, even though I can never field all of those ships. Yeah. You just want to do that and that becomes an issue <laughs> yeah yep. i know it's it's I, uh, oh. <laughs> all right so next question up here um this one's from willie as well as a kind of a, a secondary question kind of mash these together from twitter when thinking of your favorite designer what game does not live up to the rest that's really a hard one i mean there are certainly a lot of games that a risk and i appreciate it when someone does something that's risky in board gaming they do something that's radically different 
it's probably for me Feld. Now Feld's really interesting because Feld is probably, I would say, is the best designer as far as a variety of different games and mechanics. Like Uwe Rosenberg is phenomenal, but Feld is the type of guy that you see something different. I mean, from game to game. I mean, he's typically known for his, you know, point salad games, but nonetheless, he has a lot of different types of games. I think the game that really falls apart for me is Rialto. Um, be, for a number of reasons. Graphic design is very problematic. That's not really his his issue so much, but it's just a very hard game to play. And since it's all about utilizing the cards in the game and how you're able to pick them up and how you're able to play them in different sets, player order is ridiculous. And then just someone hoarding certain com- you know colors of certain cards really just gives them an unfair advantage so the game just kind of like snowballs from there. So I happened to own a copy of it because it was on a massive sale and I want to have Feld's collection, but it's still in shrink. I've played the game multiple times, other people's copies, but it's never come out of shrink despite how much I love Feld. Yeah, I mean, Feld's up there for me. He's not, you know, he's one of my favorite designers. I have all of his games, um, except for his most recent game, Forum Trajanum. Oh my God, yeah. I don't like it. I've We played it at PAX last year. Sure struggled through the rule book kind of stumbled our way through the game i've played it again since and it's just it doesn't come together it just feels like a disjointed mess mm-hmm. um and so i've yet to pick it up especially because it's a stronghold game so it's 70 dollars <laughs> number. so i'll get it eventually because i want to have all his games but hopefully it clearances out uh, my favorite favorite designer vital lacerda i don't know that he has any games i don't like the games of his that i won't play are like the original versions of things, right? So I won't play Vino's first edition because it's overly complicated. Like the way you have to work the money in the bank, yeah. like separate actions to pull the money out and reinvest. It's it's unnecessary. It's very confusing. It's hard to teach to people. The new version is so much better. CO2 is similar. Like the new version is just a better game. um, In my opinion, I like it better. That's kind of, he fixed his own problems though. So I'm not really sure those count. You know, he made the games better. So nothing really there. On the Rosenberg front, he's up there in the top three for me as well. Ray Holt, the most recent game of his, is sure. a pretty significant disappointment as well. I really didn't enjoy that one very much. Yeah, I think Rosenberg's one of my favorite designers, and he does so many things great. I mean, I know it's one of your favorite games, Feast for Odin, but it's one of my least favorite games. Someone that game that recently I was like, want to play Feast for Odin? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to play any of that. It's just, we've talked about games sometimes being fiddly as far as just like how you have to manage the components and all the different things you have to do and all the icons. And this is just, that's one of the games where I'm just like, if I had played Feast for Odin first and none of his other games, at least I probably would have never played anything else beyond that. Just because I was like, I just can't mentally comprehend everything he's trying to do here. And it's just, why is this a game? Like this seems like something that needed an editor to come in and Rosenberg is brilliant. Lacerda, I haven't found a game I haven't liked of his, but I haven't played the earlier versions of the games that you're mentioning. So he kind of got in like almost like a mulligan here. And it's yeah. like, you know, those earlier things, I fixed those things, yeah. which is just kind of weird for board gaming that someone came in and just went and did a remastered version of their games. So, I mean, I guess other than Stegmire, I haven't seen that anywhere else, but his games have been fantastic. So it's kind of hard to find, like you said, those games that really just break a trend. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's it's hard to, like, I had a similar experience, obviously, with uh, Agricola, where I actively avoided Caverna and Rosenberg's other games because I had such a bad experience with that first one. Yeah. Um, it's just, you never know what's going to hit you right or wrong way. 
It's true. Has your game group watch a video or read the rules before a game night, or do you teach at the table? Uh, we've tried that, at least initially. That was always the thing that was like, hey, we're going to play something long or complicated or heavy. If you could watch this video in advance, that'd be great. But that never seems to work out very well because for a couple of reasons, obviously one being that not everyone does it. Yeah. And then obviously if you show up at game night and once you decide upon a game, now you're trying to watch the video on a phone yeah. and that doesn't play well either. And I, I find typically, even if people have watched the video, you still need to teach because the video doesn't cover how things actually work together when they're in play. And sometimes even when you watch those playthroughs, they're really kind of disjointed and maybe the, the camera's not in the right place. So it's good in theory. I don't think in practice it really works. No, because you're right. There's always the one person who didn't do it. Yeah. And if there's one person who didn't do it, then you have to teach the whole game anyway. So why bother making everybody else do it? Yeah. There's nothing worse than having three people at the table pissed that they wasted an hour of their time watching a video because one person didn't feel like doing it. It's true. It's, the one exception is, though, the group I went to last year play Twilight Imperium for yeah he insisted and if you didn't prepare and watch the videos in advance you yeah. couldn't play there you like, go he was harsh but it was it's fair because a there was more people who wanted to play and come to sure. than who did and b teaching that game takes about an hour on top of a six-hour game so you kind of have to like you have to prepare for that and yeah. the videos are good so i think if the game's long enough and complicated enough and requires that much preparation you could make it work if it's a big production of a thing. Sure. But for most games, no. I think it's a teach at the table is easier. Yeah. All right. So next question here. How many plays do you encourage the group to play of a game before trying something different? So I think what Drew is alluding to here is if you're going to play a game, like let's say you pick up a new game and you bring it to game night three or four times, what is the point at which you're like, all right, we're done with this one. Let's try something else. I think that in my experience, at least twice, I think that there's always that initial bad teach or you had a bad game or you got into, you got stuck in a bad situation. I think a lot of people come out of a first game and are like, oh, I hated that. Yeah. But maybe you positioned an island incorrectly because you weren't taught correctly or maybe it was a bad strategic decision. And some games you can't understand, you know, the cards, the strategy, what tactics are available or the player interaction. Even if you watch the video, like you don't understand like, Oh, he could do this and she could do that. Yeah. So you have to get through that first, sometimes bad game. I almost always don't either watch or read a strategy kind of guide for a game because I want to, I want to kind of like struggle and understand what the struggle is for the game. And then later on read all that kind of background stuff and that meta and go, Oh, okay. I can do all these cool things, but I understand looking at the game what that would be like so i would say at least two times if not three times i would agree with that yeah i mean we just played a game last night and i had a horrible experience <laughs> i'm i would you were just joking like oh you should review that i'm like i'm not gonna review it because i need to play it again <laughs> because i know the game's not bad it's got a good rating people sure. like it again we're talking about taj mahal i but i had a miserable experience because i didn't understand the game until about a third of the way through at which point it's too late to do anything and I understood the game just fine. And yeah, I yeah, won by 40 points. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know. <laughs> it was like the time we played Barrage. And I'm like, this game is dumb. And I'm like, oh, I think it's fine. Yeah. And I won by 40 points. But yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I had the same problem with Food Chain Magnet, like the first time I played it. Sure. And that's a game where, like, if you don't get it right away, you're going to lose. Sure. Guaranteed, because you're set up for You can't come back. Like, Taj Mahal, I could have come back, theoretically. Food Chain Magnet, you're never coming back. So you're just playing for three hours. Yeah. You're going to lose. But I kept thinking about it. And I wanted to get better, so then I played it again. And I still lost, but at least that time I tried. Yeah, I think a lot of those heavy games where early actions determine later benefits. Yeah. If you made a mistake on round two and you didn't do something you needed to do, and now you're paying for it every round or at the end of the game, you're gonna have a bad time and you have to sit through it. Yeah. And you're just you're just steaming about the whole thing, like I should have done that. Why didn't I do that? And now you have to do that for an hour and a half. Right. So I, I know Antiquity was a game that uh we had some issues with some players because when you place your second city, if you're not really, really hardcore planning on that, you can get crushed or you can crush someone else. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's a thing. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And that's what Barrage was for Fuji Magnet was. And I guess to a lesser extent, Taj Mahal. <laughs> sure. Um, all right. So I, I mean, I, I, to your point to actually answer the question, I would say two, at least, at least two. Um, and it's, at this point, honestly, I go for three for a lot of games. Yeah, yeah. Like Bruges is a game I've played twice. Sure. Highly disliked. Been meaning to get it back to the table for that reason because I have not played it that third time. But it's uh, it, we also do a podcast. So getting a game three plays if we don't like it is sometimes difficult to do. Yeah. And I, I think in general, if you want to keep your mind open at least because an expansion might come out that fix some mechanics mm-hmm. of the game. Or you mentioned Vitella Serta remasters his games at certain points so if you play the game you had a bad experience but now there's a new version of it which we're seeing a lot more these days especially on kickstarter give it another shot just because there might be something worth finding in there absolutely yeah all right so another question here that this is one we talked about on the kickstarter bonus episode so if you go back to way back to the beginning of the year uh, special episode number 10 around the first of the year we did our board game razzies worst of 2018 so drew asks us what our biggest disappointment of 2018 was and we did talk about that among other things including biggest kickstarter letdown worst expansions decisions we don't get biggest thematic failure and worst trend mm-hmm. so this was just us being very negative for 30 <laughs> minutes but we could pull a highlight and share our biggest disappointment from last year sure Two things for me. I mean, obviously, my biggest disappointment on that episode was Keyforge. Now, I know Keyforge has kind of blown up and it's become pretty established in board game stores. But initially, the thought and the idea of what Keyforge could be was phenomenal. And the expectations about Keyforge was tremendous. And then what Keyforge kind of least settled as was a, a relatively okay but generic kind of game thematically the game has zero connection to the mechanics guilds or factions or whatever it is and it doesn't really mean anything and that the name of the deck doesn't really mean anything and how you can have super powerful decks just because of the algorithm and crush somebody else and how you have to manage that situation or you have a deck that either is broken some way and then you have to send that deck back and get a replacement or something like that was extremely disappointing for me who was looking to find a relatively cheap ccg to kind of get myself involved into although the game that really just expectation wise crushed me in a way that i didn't expect was a game that i got to table in 2018 it came out late 2017 was uh charterstone uh charterstone was from stonemeyer games and it was something i was really looking forward to is going to be a euro legacy game 
and it was a worker placement game and I was super stoked and you played 10 games of this and I had a game group for this and I was so happy to get this to the table and almost every game of it, I was bored mm, yeah. and thematically I still don't get it. I yeah. still don't understand <laughs> where this super, super dark twist comes into this chibi game and how each of the different connections from game to game were like almost pulled out of left field. And once again, I don't want to give any spoilers away if you happen to have not played Charterstone, but I highly recommend not playing Charterstone. It's by far my greatest disappointment in gaming up to this point. Yeah, it was that one was pretty rough. Um, so I agree with one of yours and the other one you're completely wrong about. But <laughs> I just think it's funny because every time we talk about Keyforge, you're like, ah, this game sucks. And I'm like, this is my most played game of 2019. <laughs> I played well, like I, 70 I, times. I played Love Letter a lot when it, when it first came out too. It doesn't mean it's the best game ever. Uh, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Love Letter is the best game ever. Yeah, sure. If that means Keyforge, no. <laughs> no, Keyforge is, I find it a very solid game. Um, obviously, I keep spending money on it, so I think so. But for me, like my biggest disappointments were the other unique game that FFG put out last year that was Discover Lands Unknown. And so the things you said about Keyforge, which I don't fully agree with, 100% apply to this game. So sure. <laughs> like it's generic, it's boring, it's dull, there's nothing to do. And it's just, it's the most cynical lack of theme ever. It's just like, here are some random lands you could be on. And now here's some random things you could do. And here's some random things you could discover. And there's no story. None of it means anything because, of course, it's just jammed together. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure without a narrative. Um, man, that game was a disappointment. And it's not that I expected it to be anything, but it was just bad. Yeah. The other big one for me was Rise of Queensdale. Because after Charterstone, I was like, I still feel like you could make a Legacy Euro and make mm-hmm. it work. And this is from the brands who are amazing and have won a bunch of awards. Mm-hmm. And the game looked good, and it was this big box with a bunch of cool stuff in it, and it was just same thing as Charterstone. Boring. The mechanics didn't kick in until four or five games in. The story didn't make a ton of sense. It's there. It builds up eventually, but you're just like, what am I doing? But did it have a candle for no particular reason? <sighs> no. No, it did have a plunger. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because your boards have all these little hex tiles. To remove them, you use the plunger, but it's also the first player marker. And then plungers would sometimes show up in some of the armor. There's no reason. It's it's a medieval city. Wow. <laughs> it was, yeah. I I wanted that game to be so much better. And I, I think it was kind of, that one marked the end of this glut of people attempting to do legacy games that were unique IPs. Sure. I think all we're going to see from now are just, let's retheme like Machi Koro and all this other stuff that's coming out. Well, I think the problem is, is that they have a game and they decided to stick a legacy yeah. you know, theme on top of it. And they're doing, like you said, Machikaro is one. Charterstone's obviously one. Rise of Fenris, even though I think it's a phenomenal expansion, one of my favorite expansions ever, that whole legacy kind of thing is just yeah. completely tacked on. And I appreciate the effort, but when it's tacked on, it feels bad and it makes the game bad or the expansion bad. 100%, yeah. And I don't know. I don't like... I still feel like Risk and Pandemic are the only two that pull it off. I think so, too. I mean, I know a couple people have told me Betrayal is good, but I don't like Betrayal, the base game, so I don't know why I'd play the Legacy version. Yeah, I think so. All right. All right, so we got one more question here. And so this one came from David. 
And I actually posted it up on Facebook to get your guys' answers as well, because I knew it was one we get a lot of responses to. Hey, David. Yeah. <laughs> and we got 35 comments. Wow. So people people had opinions. David wins. Yeah, he definitely wins on this one. Uh, so the question was, what's the most you have or will oh, no. ever pay for a board game? The most I have ever played for a board game was the, and I mentioned this earlier, the Small World Deluxe, which was one of those kind of wooden crates with like ridiculous components not to mention the fact that I already owned at that time all the Small World stuff previously, and it was already a good production. So it was a completely superfluous <laughs> purchase, but that's probably the most I've spent on a, a board game that was, I guess, still luxified. So maybe it's a little unfair. Probably the most I spent on just a straight board game would probably be the uh, Tokaido Deluxe Edition, which I think was like $115 or something like that. And it was super deluxe. It did come with the expansions to it. So to be fair, and I guess obviously as far as ridiculous amounts of money I've spent, probably Arcadia Quest mm, yeah. because every little miniature thing is like another five bucks and you feel like you need to have them all because I don't know why, but you feel like you need to have them all. Even though once again, just like the X-Wing miniatures, the Attack Wing miniatures, you'll never feel them all. No, God, no. You just have them. Yes. <laughs> I think the most expensive single game I bought was the Batman gotham city chronicles Jeez, yeah that was 320 i Ooh. think now that came with like four or five expansions so i just went all in on the sure. kickstarter i think it's just the base game would have been like 150 and which would be up there i think with most of the top spending i've done on any games if i was gonna like math out the game i've spent the most money on i haven't done the math so i'm not 100 percent sure but it's probably either imperial assault because i've purchased everything for that mm -hmm. which is probably about eight or nine hundred dollars yeah. or Either the Lord of the Rings or Arkham LCGs. Sure. Because Arkham, I've bought everything for to date. The game's been out for two and a half years. So if you're thinking about at least $15 a month, that's sure. a ton of money. <laughs> like four or $500. Lord of the Rings, I don't have everything for. I got in late, but I did pick up a lot of stuff for it. So it's probably also up in the several hundred dollar range. I didn't go all in on any of the X-Wing type stuff. Like, I have the models I like. Like, sure. if a ship comes out I like, I buy that ship. Yeah. And I have a box full of, like, components for when my son's old enough. I didn't go into any of the others, really. You know, I have a copy of Kingdom Death Monster that I got used at a decent discount, but I haven't added anything to it. Sure. So that doesn't really count. Arcadia Quest, I think, are probably up there with you on that. It's I've like done... several hundred dollars. We're, you know, yeah. 500 some odd dollars for that. Yeah, I did Infernos. I did Pets. I did Riders. And then I did Starcadia. I didn't all... do Starcadia, but I did all the S ones, including Masmoria. Masmoria, too. Yeah, I did do that. Just because it had figures that go with the game. Yeah. Not for the game itself, so to speak, but... Sure. <laughs> I don't remember what, what levels I backed those things at. Inferno, at least, I bought everything that was Kickstarter exclusive. So that's probably three or four hundred dollars. Yeah. So... Let's just say, I do hope my wife doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> well, I think the Lacerda games, if you're talking about a game without expansions, without Deluxified, and without like the Kickstarter extras, so to speak, his games are probably the most expensive, just, just because you're getting the base game. The production's great, the game's great, but they're typically around 100 bucks just for the game straight up. Yeah, I mean... I got Gloomhaven on the first edition, so I only paid 80-something for it. Sure, but sure. if you bought that after the fact, that's 150. As you guys can tell, we buy a lot of very expensive games. <laughs> so many that we can't remember which one is the most expensive. <laughs> um well, we try not to. Yeah, let's They were all about five bucks each, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, totally. So yeah. Don't guys, check that. There's no way to know. Yeah. Don't feel FOMO, guys. <laughs> feel glad that you have more money on your mind. <laughs> all right. So David's actual answer, he said it would be Scythe and he bought everything 
for it, including getting the miniatures painted, switched out some of the base parts and components, all the expansions, all the promos that can add up as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I bought a lot of stuff. I still have to pick up the Invaders from Afar expansion and the airships just because for some reason I played Scythe to death, didn't want to bother with the expansions. Rise of Fenris brought it back to the table. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to go back, pick up the other expansions. I didn't pick up the Meeple Source Meeples. I have a friend of ours and Jerry picked up everything for it, including the Meeple Source stuff, which is extremely expensive. Oh my God, so expensive. And it's just like, it's almost a joke. I mean, when I went to Gen Con, I was picking up Rise of Fenris. I'm like, oh, cool, Rise of Fenris. I'll get that. And they're like, oh, it's MSRP. I'm like, yeah, I kind of figured that. Oh, what are these? They're like, oh, these are Meeples. You can play with it. I'm like, oh, cool. How much are those? Like, as much as the game. I'm like, oh no, yeah, no. <laughs> like, that's not a thing and i think he's releasing or special releasing the mechs now that now come in metal oh i know i didn't know that i didn't need to know that yeah, you, you didn't hear this i'll cut this out so uh, don't worry about that i don't play this game enough to spend as much as i i have everything for it including the box and the the, the organizers all the expansions i don't play it very much at all Every month or two, you ask me if I've played Fenris. I still say no. It's very good. (laughs) Fenris is very, very good. I need to, but I'm just, yeah, it's not a game my group is in. All right, so let's run through some of these answers because everybody gave a bunch of, like I said, 35 comments. Obviously, I can't read all of them, but I'll run through some of the more interesting ones here. All right, so at the top here, we have Dustin mentions Imperial Assault Mansions of Madness, 100 bucks for each of those. Unless you count X-Wing minis, then I'd rather not talk about it. (laughs) We're with you. Yeah. Patrick mentions $300 all in on one of the Arcadia quests. Uh, Kickstarters. Ha. Yep. <laughs> We're there there too. Uh, Tad mentions having spent probably $1,000 on HeroScape stuff. That's one of those games that it sounds like a ridiculous amount, but it's super out of print and never going to come back because of all the IPs. Yeah, if you want it all, then you're going to pay that. Terrain. You're buying a lot of terrain. Yeah. Yep. So Tommy mentions he's not counting the Fantasy Flight Bottomless Pits, which... Yeah, that's the problem. Respect that. Yes. Uh, he played ninety dollars for drum roll, and oh wow! In general, he's about seventy-five dollars is his tipping point. Doesn't like to go over seventy-five. Sure. Uh, Peter mentions scythe as well, um, as well as dice masters. Yes. So I think I mentally excluded any CCGs and yeah. LCGs here. Like I've probably spent a ton on Star Wars Destiny, but I don't know how much, and I don't want to count. I it. think we could do an episode of where we have, and obviously our listeners have cut off from certain games. Because I think there's a breaking point for everybody. Yeah. Because if, if you don't break off, it breaks you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Willie mentions Gotham City Chronicles as well as Rising Sun with all the extra stuff. Ditto. I didn't... Oh, and the Broken Token Case. Ooh, Ooh, I didn't buy the Broken Token Case, but that was beautiful. Oh my gosh, yeah. I have to ask him if he painted it or not. We've got Chris here mentions the Zombicide Black Plague and all its extra stuff. There's a lot of stuff. Amy mentions the... Well, she asks, are we considering expansions, adventure packs for an LCG? In which case, yes, because I already mentioned that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but for her, otherwise it's around 100 bucks. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, those are definitely one of those rabbit holes that once you get started, and if it's good, why would you stop? Because there's just so much beautiful content. But those games become lifestyle games for sure. And they go out of print. Yes. Like, uh, a buddy of mine and I have been playing Netrunner lately. He got into it. Yeah. And he's been trying to track stuff down. And some of those old boxes are like, hundred dollars yeah because it's all out of print now so he's just buying what he can just a couple more here tim mentions mythic battles pantheon and he spent about 500 bucks on that john mentions the tracarion collector's edition which is a 115 plus the shipping ditto 
Yep, I'm in on that one. <laughs> and uh, just a whole bunch of other stuff here. I mean, people spend, and a few people did mention some LCGs, CCGs. I think you can sure. measure those in the thousands easily. But I think everybody has their own threshold. They're almost, for every gamer though, there's that one game where you're just like, all right, I'm doing it all. I'm getting everything. And that's the one that usually breaks the bank. So yeah, I mean, it's it's fun, but also sad sometimes to think about all the money where it's gone, <laughs> if, especially if the game hasn't been getting played. But yeah, thanks everybody for answering that question though, because there's a lot of good answers there. Yeah, it's a great hobby. There's a lot of great stuff, but there's a lot of rabbit holes and sometimes they're good. You know, it really takes you down a, a wonderful type of experience. And having all the stuff, whether it's all the miniatures or having all this LCG packs is just wonderful because you can play those games over and over again. And I think as we mentioned on the Patreon back episode, all of these games are getting super expensive. I mean, we're really in a golden age in a lot of good ways, but also in a golden age because everything's gilded with gold. Yeah. So every game is now coming with ridiculous components overproduced which is not a bad thing if you have the money, but if you get involved in it, everything is gilded. And then everything is like crazy expensive. Every expansion now that we've been talking about it is almost, if not more than the base game. Oh my gosh. We were just talking about the Roll for the Galaxy expansion, the new one. I don't remember what it's called, but I'm not going to buy it, so I don't care. It's 80 bucks. <laughs> yeah. $80 expansion for a $50 game. That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. So uh, be careful out there and we'll keep you up to date on what's actually worth buying and once again, we appreciate all the feedback that we get from you and all the listener questions that you respond to. Thank you so much for letting us know that we are the reason you make your purchases and what purchases you're actually making. So thanks again. We are super independent, so we don't have any publisher backing. So um, come back, let us know what you're looking to buy, and we'll let you know if that game is worth picking up, whether this game is worth dodging or worth burning. And because we've backed so much games, it's a pretty big barn fire you might end up with. Yeah, well, you know, if the, the heat goes out, we got enough kindling. Right? There you go. <laughs> All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table. Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.